0: Father, we're thankful that You have brought us together again on this Lord's Day to worship You. We thank You that You gather us collectively, Lord, and we acknowledge who we are before You, and we sing and we praise and we express hearts of gratitude for Your kindness to us in Christ, and we're fed by Your Word. And we know we need it weekly, and we're grateful that You provide us the opportunities for that, Lord. And and now as we press on in our study of the Old Testament, we haven't gotten very far, Lord. Um, I pray that you will help us this morning uh, to uh, to press on, and and Lord, where there is confusion, I pray that by your grace you'll bring clarity both for the one teaching and for those who are hearing. And again, we're quick to confess that if any of that happens, Lord, it will be because of your kindness and because of your grace. And we ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen well we 're thick into it now aren 't we? Um, I know some of you are sort of in and out, and just, um, i'm I apologize I'm sort of dumping you into the deep end of the pool here um, the 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 class is meant to be an overview of the Old Testament, a kind of aerial view, and we haven 't really got past Genesis twelve <laughs> uh, so you know it 's either we 're going to go into sort of light speed now on a kind of millennial Falcon thing or something like that or or, um, or it just might become a theology of the Pentateuch class. We'll just have to see what happens. Um, no, but, but I do want to get through, we'll do an aerial view here, but if you remember last week our running theme, and I and I do, I was reflecting on this more with some students this week at Beeson, I do think this becomes a kind of running theme throughout the whole of the Bible. It's, um, there's always the danger, anytime we do biblical theology, that is wrestling with how the Bible in its total witness speaks to theological realities, we do run the danger um, of reducing uh, the Bible to a, a sort of simple maxim or reducing it to one one particular theological aspect when you know that the Bible is profound and complex enough um, to, to betray that kind of reductionistic instinct of reading it. And this is Augustine's famous line, you know, that the Bible um, is... Is accessible enough for a child to understand what he needs to understand, and it's profound enough to keep scholars debating through the ages. And that—that's one of the beauties of the Bible. Um, but with this running theme, right, that I—that we're looking at from the standpoint of Genesis one to eleven, as it then unfolds into the rest of the Bible, is this move from chaos into cosmos. Remember this from last week: In Genesis chapter one, verses one and two, become a title, titular head, really for. The whole of Genesis, and that is here, God is the creator. He is the one that's in the beginning. And he comes down on the primordial mess, on the chaos, and he speaks by the power of his word, and all of a sudden things begin to happen simply by the power of his word. Not I'm in some sort of cosmic battle between God, the God of the of the Israelites and the gods of the Babylonians or the gods of the Egyptians. It's not, it's not a cosmic battle. It's God acting in His own unified and singular way to speak and to bring the world into existence. I mean, these are great words, aren't they? Let there be light, and there was light. So we see that. So we see the, the, the cosmos, the order of the world that comes out of the primordial chaos that God speaks into, and He shapes it according to His own word and for His own goal and purpose. And then we get into Genesis three, and it's all bets are off, right? I mean, now it's the fall. Um, it, uh, Adam and Eve at the garden, and then the, the fruit and the snake. And I mean, this—the it's, it's, dean just gave me a book here, and uh, "Original Sin." It's got a snake and an apple on the front. I guess that sort of gets at it, doesn't it? Right? I mean, Genesis chapter three. Now. Chaos has come back onto the scene of the created order. The good world that God created. God created a good world. Let's put it this way. God loves His world. He loves His creation. And there's remnant of that that's still present with us. And we have to lean, I think, in our own particular location in time and space, in modernity, we have to lean against this uh, kind of running away from the material world into into some spiritual other. There's, There's a lot of, I think, fashionable religions out today, sort of spiritualist, new age religions that are really an escapist approach to reality, to try to get you out of the physical world into some spiritual other. That's not the God of the Bible. I mean, the God of the Bible, the God that we worship this morning in name, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, loves His world. This is my Father's world. You know that great hymn. This is His world, and He loves it. So the act of creation, and then the reality of sin that comes onto the scene and brings that good created order, and now makes it askew. And now, to use the language, the classic reform language, it is now depraved. Um, and and just, just so you know, this, this language of total depravity, in the case that really bothers you, it doesn't mean that people are as bad as they really can be. I think this troubles people. I mean, we think that, you know, well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I know I'm bad, but I'm not really that bad. I'm not totally bad. I mean, I'm bad, but I'm not totally bad. But this depravare, this depravity that we're talking about, really has more to do with a curving and a skewing. Everything now, totally. All of reality, all of what makes you, you, your thinking self, your feeling self, your willing self, all that makes the world, the world, has now been skewed and impacted and affected by the sum total reality of sin. We don't talk a lot about sin, I don't think, but... I don't know how we can get away from it and the engagement in the Bible because Genesis chapter 3 sets us on a course within God's redemptive economy that we cannot turn back from and wish that it, or, or sort of turn back the clock so that it's a different time and a different place. It's not the case. We're dealing with sin and the effects of sin on the world, which is brought about in the rest of Genesis 1-11, to after you get past chapter 3, Cain and Abel, Lamech is, is now celebrating the fact that he murdered someone. You have the flood that comes on. And what is the flood? What is Genesis 6? It's God, again, by the power of His Word, allowing His cosmos to go back to that primordial chaos. It's water. It's the deep, it's, it's the fearful place of water that now envelops the whole of the world. And that's what God has done. Again, by the power of His own Word. He created in chapter 1 and 2. And now He's undoing His creation by the same effective power, His Word, in chapter 6. But He's not done with humanity. See, this is the big difference. Humanity is God's crowning achievement in His creation. He loves his world. Can we say that? He loves his mountains. He loves his crazy giraffes. He loves those weird zebras. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, just go to the zoo, right? Just go. That's just funny. I don't know what purpose that serves, but that giraffe is funny. An ostrich, I don't know what purpose an ostrich serves, but that's funny. That brings God joy. It brings us joy and pleasure. So in all of the beautiful things of this world that we enjoy, it's you and me. It's humanity that is His crowning achievement. It's humanity that He has set His affection on and made in the likeness of His own image. And so when you see the primordial chaos in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and 8, the flood that's going on, and you think, my goodness, the world has now been turned upside down again. We're back to chaos. And then it's this sort of panoramic view that comes down. And what do you see on this huge ocean of a world now? This little boat. Floating on the water with some people on board and some animals. And God's going to start things all over again. See, that is the character of God from Genesis to Revelation. Or as one of my colleagues likes to say, from Genesis all the way to the maps at the back. Right? The whole of the Bible. What does the whole of the Bible have to say about? That God is involved. That God has determined Himself to be involved in His creation. Because he loves his world and he loves primarily his people. And so he's constantly involved in new creation activities, new creation building again, which culminates in the person and work of Jesus as He inaugurates the kingdom and as He, when He comes back again, will consummate that kingdom by making all things new. I looked and I saw a new heavens and a new earth coming down from heaven, like a new city, a new Jerusalem, and it comes down onto the world. We're going to live in that world. So I don't know what your view on heaven is. There's a lot, frankly, that we just don't know. Um, you, you remember that famous... Far side cartoon where the two guys are sitting on the cloud and one of them looks at the other and says, if I'd have known heaven was going to be this boring, I'd have brought a magazine. Um, you know, we have these sort of very very low-flying understandings of what heaven, like what's heaven about? Well, I don't know, i get my own cloud, I guess. I don't, I don't. There's a lot about heaven that we don't know, where people are that we don't know. But I will say this, and you said it this morning in your confession of faith that we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, that confession that we make is a confession that the ultimate culmination of all things is the new heavens and the new earth. It's God's world. I don't know if you think about heaven and, and eschatology or final things as the escape of your soul from its, the bound its bound character in a body. I don't know if you think about it that way. But I've had to have my own adjustments to this, to my thinking. Because heaven, ultimately, the final goal is not my soul escaping from the bounded character of my body. Now fly away, soul, to wherever you go. No. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Our bodies really matter. There is some connection. I don't understand the physics of it. I don't understand the science of it. God does. I'll leave that to Him. But in some way, these bodies, frail as they are, are organically related to those bodies that we will have for all eternity as we relate to one another. It sounds crazy. I know it. I know some of you are thinking it sounds crazy. But it's at the heart of the Christian faith that we believe in the goodness of the material world that we're not trying to escape the created order, and that whatever that final day looks like, as we enter into new bodies, and as we enter into eternity together, I, I don't. I don't understand all of it, but I do know at one side at least that will be physical. It'll be three dimensional. I mean, we we you see hints of this all throughout the Bible. That Lazarus was there with Abraham's bosom, and the rich young rich person was. Over there, Dives was in Hades. And he recognized Abraham. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about that, but at least we know he recognized him. When Jesus had his glorified body, they recognized who he was. It's going to be a physical world that we live in, in the new heavens and the new earth. God loves his world. But sin has turned it upside down. And then when you get past Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel and all the chaos, you get to the Abrahamic covenant. And now... It's totally new. I'm making all things new, we could say, as a kind of chapter head to Genesis chapter 12. I'm making everything new now. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm calling this guy Abraham from Tehran, from the area that we think of as maybe Iran or, or, or northern Iran. I'm calling this fellow. And I'm going to lead him out. In Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to make his seed so great that the whole world will know that he is and will be blessed by him. And as you move on in Genesis, what do you see with this? I've always wondered about this. Genesis is 50 chapters, and a large chunk of it is given to the Joseph narrative. A large chunk of it. Um, I, I like that Joseph story. I mentioned this to a class on Tuesday night that I'm teaching over at Beeson. Um, we had a family reunion this summer. Uh, I've told you all about this, I think, in different contexts. So, so it was 60-something of us together. Um, all, you know, just immediate family. This is my wife's family. Um, and, uh, and we even rented a bus, right? We chartered a bus to take us um, in Traverse City out to the uh, Sleeping Bear Sand Dunes. I don't know if you know these. Any, any of you have been to the Sleeping Bear Sand Dunes up in Michigan? They're gorgeous, aren't they? So we're traveling on this. And, uh, and then on the way back, and know, all the kids are zonked out, and they, they put on a movie, a cartoon. I hadn't seen the cartoon, but it was the Joseph cartoon. They looked, it looked a lot like the Prince of Egypt and, you know, I'm thinking, oh, great, they have a cartoon. And, and I realized sort of about you know, 30 minutes into it, I'm completely engrossed. It's like, you know, beautiful scenery outside, you know, cherry trees blossoming. And I'm like, Joseph's story. And then by the end, and all my brother in you have to know of our family, my brother-in-laws are, are, are um, if I can use this term correctly, like the sort of manly men. Like they, you know, like, they like to mill wood for fun. They're those kind of guys. And, uh, you know, so I'm always, I'm always sort of questioning my masculinity when I'm around them anyhow. And uh, you know, so I'm watching this show, and it's over, and I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm sort of choked up, you know, I mean, this, this beautiful scene at the end, and I'm sort of looking, you know, I'm making sure my, none of my brother-in-law's can see, you know, this there's me, 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 uh, sort of tears streaming down my eyes. It's a great story, isn't it? I mean, here's the story of Joseph. He's the great-grandson of Abraham, who is thrown into this pit, and I mean, it's just, it, it makes for a great tale. And all of a sudden, what do we see with this Israelite? He's the head of the household of Potiphar, one of the chiefs in Pharaoh's army. And we think, my goodness, here he's come from the dungeon all the way to the really important position of power. And then in another strange move of the providence of God, he goes from that position all the way back down into the dungeon again for years down there. And before we know it, we blink because of his the gifts that God has given him. And we see Joseph this Hebrew boy on the throne of Egypt itself. Second in command to Pharaoh. Godlike in their terminology. So he comes from the dungeon all the way to the throne of Egypt. And he does so in an act of salvation both for Egypt and God's people. you notice that? Joseph's dreams... And his administrative acumen allowed him to collect enough grain so that Egypt did not die in the midst of that seven-year famine. And not just Egypt, because here we see the twelve tribes of Israel, Joseph's renegade brothers, coming down as well. It's making good already in Genesis. On the Abrahamic promise back in chapter 12. That your descendants. Out of your seed Abraham. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here we see Joseph. On the throne. Blessing the Egyptians. Here we see the Israelites coming. To to look for grain. Because they're 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 in hard times too. And he's blessing Israel as well. It's, It's actually quite powerful. The narrative itself. The story itself. Is God making good on the Abrahamic promise. And here we see who could have ever conceived of this. It, Abraham's great-grandson on the throne of Egypt. That's what we see. So this is the, the kind of move. We're getting all of this proleptically in the book of Genesis to tell us that God is on this grand scheme to redeem a people for Himself, but by the redemption of that particular people, to bless the whole of the world. That's what He's after. He's after the reconstitution of His world of His creation, to get back to Eden in a way. We're east of Eden now, to use Steinbeck's famous phrase. We're east of Eden, but we're on our way back to it. And this is God's plan. Maybe not a plan you and I would have drawn up. But God's plan is to set His affections on a people and to use them as the means by which the world is is to be blessed. So then you get into Exodus chapter 1, and you have this funny phrase, many years later, many years later, Um, There was a king that was on the throne of Egypt and he did not remember Joseph. And now we're into it. And if you can recall from last week, we talked about these three particular themes that make themselves especially present in the Pentateuch. And that is land, the land, the relationship, the covenant. And thirdly, we have um, the emphasis on um, relationship, land, Oh, oh goodness, and oh... Someone help me. Relationship, land, and it'll come to me, don't worry, in due course. So you have these things that are, these particular themes that are at play with God and His people, and He's setting themselves apart to get them back into their land. And it's a strange providence. It's a hard providence. It's one of these William Cooper kinds of things. God moves in mysterious ways, as wonders to perform. That the enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt actually becomes a hurdle that God brings to them so that He can usher them back into His land. Right? It's, it's a hard word, But He's brought them into this moment so that God can send a deliverer to move them into, into a new place. And it's it's a hard, hard, hard thing. Descendants. Um, relationship and land. And chosenness. This is definitely part of the relationship. Yes, thank you. Alright? So, getting here to Exodus chapter 2. One of my favorite verses in in, in, the, in the book of Exodus. It says this: In the course of those many days, so now we have the Israelites are in Egypt and they're suffering under the burden of Pharaoh. And you know why they're suffering under the burden? Because apparently, <laughs> at least the way in which it's, there's some humor here, you know, the the um, Israelite women could bear them some children. That, that's that's the the story. I mean, they they just had lots of kids, and all of a sudden. There's lots of slaves. There's lots of Israelites. And so that's a threat, the sort of threat of xenophobia, the, the, the fear of strangers, the fear of the foreigner. It's a threat to, to Pharaoh and he begins to suppress them. And in suppressing them, um, he says, you know, you have to be careful. These, these, uh, these Israelite women, they just, they just have lots of babies and they can just go on. You remember this, for example, in the story when, when, uh, when Pharaoh says, have all the male firstborn male children uh, killed. What, what, what was it that the midwife said? We can't, these, these Israelite women have the babies so fast, we can't even get there to, to do the job. I mean, and they're out in the fields working. That's the kind of, there's, there's, these strong women, strong women. It's got that sort of, um, it's got that sort of, uh, what, what, what's Garrison Keeler's famous line about Lake Wobegon, where all the women are, are beautiful and the children above average? I mean, this is definitely Israel. I mean, they're, 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 it's, it's Lake Wobegon. So They're suffering. And listen to these these verses in in Exodus chapter 2. In the course of those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned under the bondage and cried out for help. And their cry and their bondage came up to God. So this is it. They're in bondage. They're crying out to God. God is hearing their cry. And God heard their groaning, verse 24. And listen to this. And God remembered his covenant. That is big language in the Old Testament. God remembered. And what is it that he remembered? He remembered that he had made a covenant between himself and this people. He remembered himself. Can we put it in that terminology? He remembered his own commitment to be a God for this people with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And this is how most translations render this. I'll do a little will-to-power thing Hebrew with you this morning. But And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew their condition. Or, and God knew what was going on, something like that. But the Hebrew here is so terse as to actually render the, the message, I think, more powerful. It, it, it goes simply just like this. It's two words. And God knew. That's it we have the glosses was again God knew what was, no what and God knew that is at the heart of what's going on here in the book of Exodus when God is revealing his character and his identity with this particular people I will be a God for you and you will be my people God knew he, it, it didn't catch him by surprise He knew what was going on. His sovereignty in these matters never comes under question. God simply knew. And in His knowing, He's about to act. Well, you know the rest of the story. You've seen the movies, right? I mean, this is good stuff. The plagues. And it's a kind of showdown between God and Pharaoh. And it's a showdown really that that at points can make us uncomfortable. Because at the heart of this, Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, and you can sort of pick this up at another point. But at Exodus chapter 4, 20, God says, And you go tell Pharaoh Moses, the, the mightiest man in the land, you go tell him to let my firstborn son go, so that he may worship me. And if he does not this is again Exodus four, and if he does not let my firstborn son go, then I will kill. His firstborn son. You tell him that. So the, the showdown that we have in Exodus is a showdown between God and Pharaoh with the larger question whose firstborn son is going to win? Whose firstborn son is going to live? And we know the answer to that, don't we? As we come to the end of Exodus chapter 14, and we see the walls of the Red Sea falling in on the on Pharaoh. And I love the way the, the wording goes: on Pharaoh and his chariots and his armies and the riders of the chariots. I mean, they're all gone. The water just follows, falls right on top of them, because God knew, and God is about to act. Can I read you one other verse here from Exodus 14? So, this is good. I mean, we get the heart of the Israelites. So, they, they, the, the, the text says, and they left Egypt um, strong of hand. It's a weird turn of phrase. What does that mean, strong of hand? They left Egypt pretty confident. I mean, the plagues had just occurred. The the firstborns are are dead, including the firstborn animals are dead. I mean, they know that God's on their side. And so here they are out in the wilderness. Pharaoh changes his mind. He's after them. And they turn... It's beautifully dramatic here in Exodus 14. They turn around and they see the armies of Pharaoh pursuing them. And they do what what they do throughout the rest of their history. They turn like that. Moses. We didn't have graves in Egypt That you brought us out here into the wilderness to die? I mean, weren't the graves back in Egypt sufficient enough that you had to bring us out here to die? I mean, that's the the response. And what God says, it's so beautiful. Moses, why are you crying out? In other words, stop stop fiddling around. Get moving. That's, That's it. Get moving. And in the getting moving, this is what God says. The Lord will fight for you today. And you only need to be still. Isn't that a great verse? That's at the heart of Exodus. The Lord, Moses, get them to the side, right? And what happens? Then the cloud falls. I mean, this is is good stuff. My kids love this stuff. I mean, the cloud falls, right? You've got a cloud, a big fire pillar that's separating the armies of Egypt from the people of God, and then God says to Moses, Moses, get them to the side. I'm going to fight for them. All they need to do is just stand there. That's good stuff. That that is God redeeming, God's redemptive activity at its pinnacle. You just be silent. You be still. You don't need to say anything. You don't need to articulate anything. You don't need to draw arms. Keep all your shovels and your hose in the, you know, in the back. You're not going to fight today. I'm going to fight for you. And you're going to see my mighty hand. And this is what God has done. He redeems them. He saves them. His name as creator. And you see this in Exodus 14, don't you? God as creator and God as redeemer coming together. Because we have no questions about it, do we? That when that water splits open and when that water falls back down, that only the creator can speak to the water and do that. And it's a beautiful thing here. We see in one scene, Moses is stretching out his staff. We see in another scene where the wind is coming from the east and it's just splitting the the, the sea open. And then we see in Psalm chapter 78, I believe it's one of my favorite psalms, that this is the way in which the psalmist describes what happened at the Red Sea. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. So, so what's the psalmist metaphor for why the sea split? They saw their creator coming down and were afraid, and the only response they had was to split wide open. God is the creator, and as creator, He is also the redeemer who's bringing His people through, so that the water is like walls on either side of them as they come to the other side of the sea. So you know what the rest of the Pentateuch is about? It's Torah, it's instruction. We're going to get the Ten Commandments. We're going to get laws. We're going to get detailed laws about the tabernacle and how the tabernacle is to be structured and how, the tabernacle, and how worship in the tabernacle is to take place as you move into the book of Leviticus. And it talks about ritual purity and all these various kinds of sacrifices and what it means to be the people of God in the land. So you know all this stuff about the law, although I think that's a kind of heavy term. When we think about it just as instruction. God is instructing His people. This is what it means for you to be a people that have been redeemed. This is what it looks like. And I wanted to end this morning because we're we're done with the Pentateuch today. For good or for ill. We only left out, you know, Leviticus and Numbers. and Well, it's okay. So here they are in the book of Deuteronomy, which is one of my favorite... Favorite. I, I, say this, I say these hyperbolic things too much to, to swindle them. It's my favorite right now. Um, so you come to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And what's happened in Deuteronomy chapter 5? Well, they're on the plains of Moab. They're about to go into the land. We've had 40 years of wandering, 40 years of complaining. It just hasn't been... Very, read Numbers. It's not, a, it's not a lift you up kind of tale. It's bad. It's real bad. The people of God are acting the way in which they do. That's what we see in Numbers. And then we come to the book of Deuteronomy and the law is being given again. You're about to go into the land. This is what it means for you to live in the land so that you have a rich relationship with God. Choose life. That's the big theme of Deuteronomy. If you walk in this way, there's life. If you walk the other way, there's death. So he's just given the Ten Commandments again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And then you come to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and you have this famous... I mean, you, you know this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Another way of rendering that would be, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. I actually like that rendering better. There is only one, there, there is, we only have one Lord and He demands our loyalty. Love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then you have this whole emphasis in Deuteronomy 6 on instruction, which is a big deal. Teaching, carrying on the tradition. Talking to our children about it, it says this here. When you're on, when you're walking along the road, when you're hoeing out in the garden, tap it up on your on your door mantle. Uh, we we live in an older home in the South Side, 1927 I think it was built, and uh, I have a, I can see the remnants of an old mezuzot there on the on the on our door going in where the Ten Commandments were put on the door of, of Jewish homes. I don't know who the family was, but you know, the, put it, put the, put the commandments right on your doorpost, right on your forehead. And then verse 20. You might be surprised by this. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the ordinances or the laws which the Lord our God has commanded you? So here your son comes. You've been telling him all these things. Don't have other gods. Remember the Sabbath day. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't do this. When they ask you, what does all this mean? Then you shall say to your son, here's the answer. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there. That He might bring us in and give us the land which He swore to give to our fathers. Isn't that surprising to you? When the Son asks for an exposition of these laws, what do they mean? The answer that is to be given is the answer of redemption. That's how I feel fill in the substance of this. I don't fill it in with a kind of appeal to natural law. It's just better this way. right? I don't do that. I don't fill it in with an appeal to sort of moral striving. It's not that. The reason why we do these things that God asks us to do is because we were dead in Egypt. All alone. With no one in the world to care or help us. And yet God in His infinite mercy came to us and He delivered us out of the hands of the Egyptians. So that an attention to the will of God and the instruction of God becomes an act of gratitude. See that? Gratitude is a theological theme that was at the heart of the Reformation. If you ask Calvin, if John Calvin walked in here right now and we were to say... And he would hate this and get angry and, you know, be like Calvin, I think, could be. But if I were to ask him, Calvin, just boil it down. Like, give, give us a sort of walk-away thing. What, what's the Christian life about? After he swore for a little bit for reducing it, like, because he wouldn't want to do that, I genuinely believe Calvin would say, gratitude. Gratitude. I mean, Paul can't write a letter without talking about thanksgiving. And gratitude, the, the, the Jubilate come into his courts with thanksgiving and in, into his gates with Thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Why? Because gratitude is the proper response to grace. What is the response to grace? The proper response. The only real response is gratitude and thanksgiving. It's a kind of shock and awe thing, isn't it? When you're standing by the Red Sea or you're standing at the foot of the cross and you see God do these incredibly redemptive acts for you, it's shock and awe. And what's the response? What's the reply from humans? What's the only thing that really is commiserate with what we've just observed? It's gratitude. It's thanksgiving. The opposite of gratitude in the Old Testament is idolatry. It's idolatry. That's the opposite. And it's why Paul takes it so seriously to emphasize be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. Why? Because thanksgiving and praise and gratitude, that is the proper response to God's grace. I mean, we might think of these things like laws and commandments and what God has to say as a, as a heavy burden. Jesus didn't. He so says it's kind of light. And it is, I, I, I know I'm stepping into sort of territory here that can get dangerous because we have to always think about how to wrestle with these matters. But the point to be made is for, to, from a New Testament perspective and frankly from an Old Testament perspective as well, they're not primarily lists to be performed. It's gratitude in reaction to what God has done for us. I wanted to close this morning. If you're okay, um, don't check out yet. I don't like being read to very much. Um, but can I read to you? This is from Carl uh, Barth. Uh, in the church dogmatics. Um, don't rush for the door. <laughs> don't rush for the door. This is what he said is about the covenant of grace. The third thing which we maintain when we describe the covenant as the covenant of grace, that is God has moved to us in grace alone. Not of human achievement. Not of human merit, human merit or effort. Nothing that we could have done. What we heard Mrs. Hole this morning talk about uh, in relationship to giving and stewardship. The covenant of grace engages man as a partner of God. We are God's partner in this covenant because a covenant demands a relationship. But listen to this. But we're only God's partner as it relates to gratitude. To gratitude. On the side of God, it is only a matter of free grace that He gives to us, this form of benefit. But for us, the other partner, in the covenant to whom God turns in this grace, the only proper thing, but the thing which is unconditionally and inescapably demanded of us, is that we should be thankful. How can anything more or different be asked of man? The only answer to charis, to grace, is Eucharistia, Thanksgiving, the Eucharist. But how can it be doubted for a moment that this is in fact asked of him? And he goes on and he says, Here, at any rate, the two belong together grace and gratitude. So that only gratitude can correspond to grace. And this correspondence cannot fail. It's failure in gratitude is sin, it's transgression. And listen to this from when Bart says something like this to me, my ears perk up big time. Radically. And basically, all sin is ingratitude. Something, isn't it? It's something challenging here. It's something challenging for us to recognize that in this relationship with God, that He comes to us and He gives us His grace and He gives us His Son. You cannot do anything of your own effort to make that happen. God does it solely for you. But we are partnered with Him. As human agents, He does call us. He does awaken us. And in that awakening, the proper response from the beginning of the Bible to the end, the proper response is thank you. Thank you. Gratitude and thanksgiving that impinges itself on our whole being. The way in which we act, the way in which we think, the way in which we feel. So when we come together every week to worship on Sunday morning and we're repenting together, because you know we do that every week in our liturgy. I'll, I need that. I know you do too. I come every week and I get to repent one more time. Right? What are we repenting toward? We're repenting toward the gospel of grace with postures, kneeling postures that reflect in our bodies and in our minds and our affections. Thank you. We're grateful. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we're grateful, we are, and we know, I know, that my life doesn't always correspond to gratitude, and that, again, ushers us back to your grace and to your kindness. But I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, you would plant deep in our hearts and in the hearts of our children and the people that we love a sense of gratitude that we were making bricks in Egypt. We were baking under the sun of sin. And in your kindness and in your mercy, you came and you rescued us. And you didn't just rescue us, Lord. You rescued us in a dramatic way that leaves us in shock. It leaves us in awe. Splitting a Red Sea, sending your own firstborn son to die on a cross for the sins of the world and the sins of even the universe, Lord, as you make things, all things new again. What can we say to You, O Lord? What can we do other than to express to You deep and sincere hearts of gratitude for Your kindness? And we ask these things in Your Son's name. Amen. Amen.